I am slightly older than you. I discovered some movies slightly earlier than you. Well, that was a pretentious thing to say. I can lead you astray, straight to hell if you like. Give me a big black box and I can open your eyes. Are we keeping it real? Are we keeping it tight? Are we all just victims of our infinite Anyway, welcome back to EnterTheRealWorld.com's There Will Be Movies, Volume 1, The 2000. My name is Matt Waters, I'm joined as always by Ben Phillips. Ben, how are you this evening? I'm good, I have just watched the three-hour cut of Almost Famous. Yeah, well, there you go, we're talking about Almost Famous today, so There Will Be Movies. This is our podcast covering 25 of our favourite movies to come out in the decade of 2000-2009. If you want a full rundown on how we arrived at this list and the vague rules and why certain films you would think would definitely be on our list given who we are and they're not go check out episode zero which will be all over the website into the real world.com soundcloud.com slash mike and matt on the playlist there today almost famous this was selected by me yeah, uh, I've, so i've got a question so we didn't actually have this on the list of either raw 20 but you kind of threw it out there at a later date and it well, just kind of like stuck on the list yeah when we got into the maybes and the you know what should be on here i was looking through i think i can't remember who originally put it on the maybe pile but i think i was the one that put the strong push to put it in it's the kind of thing where like i had seen it but not very recently and i was like i don't want to force our hand on a movie i vaguely remember so this was sort of <laughs> circling the bottom of the barrel for a long time if we needed to make any substitutions and i think i think we almost went with Mulholland drive for a, a little bit but yeah and i'm not a huge fan of david lynch's movies and you set yourself a little task and i was like go watch it and tell me if you think it should be on here instead of almost famous and uh, you relented i loved what i saw i think it'd be a fascinating discussion but yeah i i think it's decent enough i don't think it's top 25 uh yeah so this one kept almost getting dropped for various things and i'm sure when this is all over i will just be beside myself with guilt at letting certain movies not make it on while this did but we live with our decisions yeah so, so, so i'm just true so what is your story with this because i i saw it years and years ago it was like one of those ones where like me being the wanky music guy that i am this mm. is kind of one of the preeminent kind of like music movies yes. that kind of exists which i am um, a big fan of my story with it is I fucking love Empire Records. If we ever do a 90s, that is 100% going to be on my list of 20. I love I, I I saw that for the first time whilst we were working at the retail establishment that we used to work at yeah, together. Yeah, yeah. And I just remember, like, for about a solid, like, month after seeing it, I was just kind of like, I wanted to find a shoplifter and... Yeah, <laughs> and just teach with... him the ways, yeah. <laughs> I love Empire Records. I love singles. Anything of that ilk. And Cameron Crowe made singles, and uh, he went on to make almost famous i wouldn't say i love cameron crowe but i quite like cameron crowe so. i mean i don't think anyone can realistically say that i love cameron crowe at this point considering the career that he's had he started off with he wrote fast times at ridgemont high yep. he directed say anything singles jeremy Guire was huge he obviously got like free reign to do whatever he wanted with almost famous and then almost everything else since then has been. Yeah, I mean, you know, movies he did, as you will know, we are only allowing one movie per director in a given decade, but there is no chance Vanilla Sky or Elizabeth Town we're going to get on this list, so... So you, so you just love this kind of genre of movie? Yeah, and... I... When we talked about wanting to make sure we were happy with our final list and representation, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at these and I'm thinking, I like sports movies, I like music movies, and like, they're not always great. 
<laughs> Particularly sports movies, there can be some really bad ones. I was very into Coach Carter because of the basketball, but that's not a great movie overall. So I did want to try and get my taste on here in some way. I believe we'll have a sports movie uh, in volume two next year. But We have a sports movie on this one technically, but it's also my pick. <laughs> well, there is that. Okay. I like this kind of thing, I would say. I remember watching it. I potentially was too young. I cannot remember when I saw it. It was a good long while ago. And I definitely wasn't paying like 100% attention. But kind of like the imagery of the movie and the feel of it definitely stuck with me. Like it's a movie that even though I couldn't tell you the plot, not that there is much of a plot, <laughs> but it was one that I could go like, oh no, I remember the imagery of Kate Hudson. And yeah. I remember the, the stuff behind the scenes at, at the festivals and the, the, the concerts and stuff like that. And I vividly remember all the stuff at the house with her mum and his, uh, his mum and his sister. Yeah. In the I, early days. But it's definitely not one that kind of stuck with me in a way that I could, like, recommend it out to people. And yeah. I don't know why that is. I, I'm a huge fan of, uh, like, this is a phenomenal collection of talent. A lot of them getting one line, two lines. But, you know, a lot of them quite early in their career as well. And it's, it's crazy to watch it through uh, through 2019's eyes and be like, oh my god, it's it's Zoe Deschanel and Jay Baruchel and Jimmy Fallon and Mark Maron and all these people. And, you know, you're getting amazing performances from some of the top stars and yeah I mean I feel there's some stuff in here that feels a little bit you know music rock and roll cliche but Cameron Crowe potentially helped make these things cliche by presenting them in the way he did like he lived this like, that is the big uh, the thing you can't get away from this is his life story kind of apparently there's, there's a commentary for the movie which is with his mum Yes. And, like, you listen to it and you kind of understand that, like, no, this isn't, like, him making up a character. He has literally taken... Yeah, he was skipped ahead three years. He he did do the things that happen in this. Like, he went on tour with the Allman Brothers, who pretended that they weren't going to let him run the article, and one of them jumped off the roof of a hotel, and he was in a plane crash with The Who that, all, that he could have died. And, you know, the, everything that happens in this, pretty much, it's either something he's, he's experienced first, hand or like would have enough authority in the music area to know about it feels very legit it doesn't feel like someone like romanticizing and imagining well maybe there's a bit of romanticization but you know it doesn't feel like a leap of of imagination if that makes sense but we would normally cover the you know the year that was but this also came out in 2000 and we did that with memento so none of yeah that so we'll i will touch briefly on so last time we did the box office stuff at the end but we're going to do it at the start this time. So this came out in 2001, actually, in England. Neither of us obviously saw it in the cinema, I imagine, no. <laughs> because this is almost definitely rated like a 15. It's not too bad as a movie in terms of language or anything like that, but it definitely no. feels... Like I think it's like the lifestyle. I don't know. And the, the heavily implication that this is a... or not even an implication. This is like a 15, 16-year-old kid yeah, who is so... around this stuff. So I feel it's that kind of thing. Yeah. So this movie opened at number six at the UK box office. Uh, it made... So $141,000 if we're converting pounds into dollars, which is three times as much as Memento made in its opening weekend in the yeah. US. Still back-to-back um, uh, -back box office bombs though. <laughs> like, this didn't even come close to making its budget back. No, it, it did not. It, it definitely did not make enough money. But the top five the week that it came out in the UK, What Women Want, <laughs> a classic of cinema Dude, Where's My Car? Of course. Traffic, uh -huh. Castaway, and The Adventures of Rocky and Bullwinkle. Wow. How do we not pick Castaway over Almost Famous? <laughs> but I like Almost Famous more than Castaway, that's why. You've kind of 
of alluded to it already, but basically the background here is Cameron Crowe made Jerry Maguire and film companies were like, make any movie you want now. And this is something he had been wanting to make for a long time because it is his life story. Lawrence Kasdan actually encouraged him to make it. I guess they're friends. One of two Star Wars connections in this movie, uh, thanks to Ben sharing some trivia with me about an hour ago. The kid that is playing young Cameron Crowe was in the running to play young Anakin Skywalker, right? Yes, he came mm. second to Jake Lloyd for episode one. The younger version lost out on playing young Anakin, and the older version, William Fugit, like, he went on to not be really prominent as an actor, just, like, anyone to play Anakin Skywalker. He was in First Man last year, and he played the female police officer's partner in Gone Girl. Okay, sure. I think it's just crazy that, you know, to be the lead in this movie that is, it may have been a box office failure, but critically very well regarded. I think it makes lists for best movies of the 21st century quite a lot. Yes, it is on the list that I, from They Shoot Pictures, don't they? I do believe it is 188th best movie of the 21st century. Mm. <laughs> Which, so like, I mean like top 200. Let's so we're saying there. top 25. <laughs> and they're saying top 200, okay. I mean, there's also 2000, 2010 movies on this. As I was saying, this is just his experiences being a under 18 music journalist writing for Rolling Stone. Uh, many details about this are reflective of his life. His mother came in because she did a cameo. She, she's somewhere in the movie, I think. But... I, I think her scene was cut. I think. Ah, okay. I heard that basically they they filmed a scene where he plays them Stairway to Heaven. Oh, and they can get the rights. It's that... and they can get the rights on the bootleg edition DVD or Blu-ray or whatever. There is in the deleted scenes you can watch this scene and it tells you it cues like press play on Stairway to Heaven now because he did get permission to use several songs by Led Zeppelin, but they would not grant Stairway. But they, they don't, Why? they never give that one. Why? They... Why? <laughs> it's not even that good of a... Oh, whatever. So this is this is a complete tangent. I was watching a video on the music of Dragon Quest earlier on today. Obviously. And I found out that the composer of Dragon Quest is a notoriously awful man who denies that the Japanese committed war crimes uh, during World War II. Of course. Um, and all kinds of stuff. But also, like, he just doesn't like licensing his music out for the own ga- his own games that he does. Uh-huh. So, like, he's like, oh, an orca- I'm not going to do this as an orchestra. You're just going to release this game with a shitty sound. Soundtrack, oh, so I can re-record it later and then have people pay me money to come see it be orchestrated. Well good, the Led Zeppelin of Japanese video games there. But his mother was on set anyway, even if her scene was cut, and she hovered over his shoulder during scenes such as uh, the one where he loses his virginity. And he said that was very awkward, and also he tried to deny her access to Frances McDormand because he didn't want to influence her portrayal, but stepped out of the room, came back, and they had become immediate friends. So there you go. <laughs> Frances McDormand is so goodness yes she is and apparently his mother and his sister were in fact estranged for almost a decade right up until after this movie came out at which point they reconciled so potentially this movie saved a family so there you go he wanted to call it untitled which is (laughs) you went to watch it in the avenue it was available to you and it was a extended cut which has 40 minutes of footage i haven't seen and it was called untitled so that's that's why that is the case yeah i i literally went out last night to buy it and it is not in stock at that retail establishment. It hasn't been for a long while. 
So I was just like, oh God, I've got to do a Google now, see whether or not I can like, find it. It was luckily available to me to stream. I got home and they just texted you and said like, Matt, this movie's three hours long. I was what like, is- no, it isn't. I just watched it. It's two hours long. <laughs> two hours long. But no, I ended up watching the, the cut that has... So apparently there's not actually much substantive difference. Okay. It's kind of more extended versions of scenes, not many additions. Mm. So it's like they basically say like the scene is two minutes long in the movie. It's now five minutes long and it kind of like gains its length from doing that. Did you feel that you got to know some of the characters better because of those? Or which, you, I don't know character, how well you remember. Which characters would you want me to say that I got to know better? His sister, Anita. If she disappears from the movie after she kind of jumps in the car and drives away and does doesn't reappear until she's a flight attendant, then no. Jeff Beebe, the lead singer, Jason Lee. I mean, he probably does get some more stuff, but I wouldn't say, I wouldn't say like, he's kind of like, in terms of people who I feel like I know, I feel like the entire band wasn't very well served. Yeah, I've, the band and, in and, general, and, everyone other than Russell, I feel it's like, I know nothing really about you. I mean, I, mean, I, I feel like I don't know anything about Crudup and Lee's characters. I think they both give good performances, and I think sure. they both sell what they're given, I think, and they get infinitely more to do than the other two guys. <laughs> one um, of whom has one line and it's I'm gay I think it's kind of the point that you don't know them yeah they're kind of like that kind of surface level they they think they just want to be famous and every single line that Lee has is this kind of like wanky like I'm making music as art and I'm taking it super seriously which is this thing that Lester Bangs is kind of like going on about like not being the good thing Hmm. and because he's kind of like taking this self-serious route to music I think that's kind of his character is that he's not presenting a real self he's presenting a thing that he thinks he needs to present to be seen as legit to my artist. Sure, that makes sense. So, well, you know, we're talking about it now. Uh, Stillwater, the fake band, loosely based on various bands that, that Cameron Crowe covered. Peter Frampton served as technical consultant for the movie, wrote two of the Stillwater songs. Cameron Crowe and his wife, Nancy Wilson, I think they're split up now, but uh, his wife at the time, they wrote the other three songs. There are five Stillwater songs. So there's even a Stillwater music video, I think, for Fever Dog that Cameron Crowe put together. And uh, Mike McCready of Pearl Jam plays guitar on all the Stillwater songs. So there you go. Pete of Humble Pie, which is a band that is mentioned in this movie. And he's in the movie as their roadie <laughs> in that little ah. yeah, in that little scene. Many people are in this movie. So we're gonna try Memento fucked it up immediately, but we're gonna try and talk about these movies in their three acts. So I considered Act One to essentially be the beginning of the movie until they're f- properly on the tour and Russell kind of takes him aside and is like, hey, make us look cool, basically. <laughs> I don't know how long that equated to in your cut of the film, but for <laughs> me that was about 40 minutes I'd, I'd say i'd say like 45 minutes to an hour would be like how much mine was i think this was my favorite section of the movie okay i think whilst i was watching it i was kind of like this is the bit that had the most performances that i really enjoyed i think zoe deschanel is fantastic mm-hmm. i think francis mcdormand is fantastic yep. i think the young version of the kid is really good as well and then i think patrick fugit is a bit less good but i think like the fact that those first three like most of their early scenes are just michael and garano so Deschanel, Francis McDormand, kind of like debating about his life, the revelation that he got skipped ahead two grades, <laughs> the whole argument where like Zoe Deschanel goes like, you do hate her, you just don't know it yet, yeah. is just it's really good stuff. And I love that Francis McDormand isn't like she is trying to like guide his life. Mm. 
but she's also like kind of more learned than that that kind of person is in traditionally media. Like like she is an arts and culture um, lecturer at university. Like she knows this stuff. But she does ban Simon and Garfunkel of all people for being you know all their music being about sex and drugs and stuff. And I I mean I guess, but I don't know. Some of this stuff doesn't age well, you know. Like and maybe that's the joke in the year two thousand. I mean this this movie definitely does make a lot of jokes about like oh isn't it weird that this thing happened like this in the nineteen. 1970s. Yeah, like, oh yeah, Mick Jagger won't be touring at 50. (laughs) (laughs) Which I feel like he's only there so Jimmy Fallon can do his Mick Jagger impression. Which he doesn't do in my cut, I'm afraid. I thought it was kind of shitty that the mother, like, I mean, maybe it's because Zoe Deschanel's character, uh, is it Anita? Yeah. She leaves. And like, you know, she was so like, no rock music, don't do this, don't do that. So she leaves and moves to San Francisco. And she leaves behind the records, Cameron Crowe's real childhood record collection. And William of course like develops this love of music and grows up still loving you know loving it more and more and writing about it and you know his mother now like she's not like she drives him to a Black Sabbath concert she's always like you know oh you know you're gonna be a lawyer and get home for graduation but I feel she lets him do all of this stuff that she didn't let Anita do and it maybe it is because of the regret of Anita leaving but that struck me as a bit like are you just full on favourite childing William here? No I think I think it is very much to do with the fact that she didn't let Anita do this stuff and she realises that she needs to have a looser hand because you get that scene later on where her son comes back after being on the road for a good long while missing his graduation she's kind of there and everything is focused on their relationship but the person that she gives the embrace to is that he comes back with his sister yeah. and I do think it is that kind of like tacit acknowledgement that like the reason that she was being less heavy handed with William yeah. was she because... literally pushed her away she pushed her yeah. out of the house and she went on to become a fabulously 70s air student <laughs> but no, I, I, it's just I think it's it's a really interesting, complicated family dynamic. That I mean, like this is a very early performance for Zoe Deschanel. Her voice is like a lot deeper than it becomes, but it's also like you get a feel that she is a star. Like she isn't doing a whole lot in this movie, but you can see why she gets the kind of opportunities that she does off like after this movie. When I remember first seeing it and thinking like, oh, is she just gone for the rest of the movie? And I, you know, sitting down to watch the credits in my in the rewatch for this. I was like, she's quite high up. Have they just done this because she went on to become more famous and like they've re-edited the opening credits? But she does come back. And I mean, she I does do, have I, some really good scenes. And... Yeah, but I also think that she is there for a good half an hour. She yeah. is. I think it's just because the bulk of because the bulk of this movie is focusing on the tour life. And the only real people who get fleshed out on the tour are Crudup, Hudson, and Jason Lee. It does mean that she does kind of like get up the credits just because she is quite integral to the first stretch of this movie. Also integral is Philip Seymour Hoffman knocking it out of the park as he is wont to do as Lester Bangs, which an amazing name, amazing that it's a real person who died of a drug overdose, as did Philip Seymour Hoffman, which is a tragic instance of our imitating life. Or like yeah, I mean. Like this, this is one of the movies where they would pull scenes from to have as tribute to Philip Seymour Hoffman. Is a small part. It's what three yeah. scenes, yeah. three scenes, but like it's so and two memorable. Of them over the phone not with another person so you know much easier to film you know he had four days available to them because he is a he was a very busy person and he had the flu for all four of them but... and you can tell <laughs> yeah but he's still so good like oh Phil Cy Hoffman so so good we miss I mean, you I'm actually, I actually have to check are we actually doing any more Hoffman movies uh, I don't think we are <laughs> I think this is our like one chance to talk about him well Syndicock New York was, was on a list at some point it was on a list at some point no, no but it, I mean he, the, Philip Seymour Hoffman is 
one of the greatest actors. Yeah. If we do the 90s, I'm going to fight for Boogie Big Nights. Lebowski. Oh, no. I, was, I said Boogie Nights. We could do so Boogie Nights and Big Lebowski. We can have, like, even more. <laughs> yeah. But no, like, he's he is a, a force. Like, last year, I decided to listen to the top 1,000 albums of all time. Mm. Um, oh, yeah, and, your <clears throat> ongoing insane project. You kept yeah, my ongoing insane project, which, which, has, which I'm still slowly working through. Like, I've, I've done the top 1,000, but that's not important right now. But, like, a lot of the stuff from the 70s, you would go to, like, the Wikipedia page or to people's criticism of it, and it's still being tinged by Lester because he is such a force in rock criticism like I disagreed with quite a few of his opinions you kind of get this thing where like Cameron Crowe was the new generation of music critics that kind of like would cover the bands that people didn't like like you see Lester Banks throwing the Yes album on the floor in the radio scene and Yes are widely seen as like one of the precursors of like or like one of the big prog bands of the, the 1970s yeah and I think um, I think Cameron Crowe might have written about Yes more than any other band somehow I, I feel like there's a strong connection between Yes and Cameron Crowe, so yeah. But like, but yeah, it's, it's obviously like Lester Bangs was someone like you. you yeah. But the thing is, I it's a, it's an interesting line to cross because I don't agree with Lester Bangs quite a bit on music criticism, and maybe that's because me coming up in the two thousands, like there's a lot of rockism to the way that he talks about stuff. But I do agree with him when he goes and says like, uh, "What's the band that he talks about?" But he says the band that, that's so goofy and they're having fun, whereas the uh, Doors are so self serious. Uh, the Who? Them. He says the Who. I don't think it's the Who. I think it's the guest. This the Guess Who. Oh, sorry, the Guess Who. Yeah, so it's the, it's the Guess Who that he says like they're having fun, and the Guess Who aren't the greatest band of all time. But I think, I think he says Jim Morrison is like something posing as a poet, so he's bad, whereas they are actually the thing that he's posing as, which makes them poet. I don't know some some bullshit or other, but it's yeah. Like, but I mean, okay. it's 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 that, it's that thing where it's like music should be fun, and I do think there is a I don't I don't know if it is like those 1960s guys who came up with the Beatles and the Stones and all these people that when they see where music's going in the 70s, which is much more in the still water vein and it is different to what was coming before it but I don't think there was bad music in the 70s I don't think you can shrug off an entire genre in that way which is kind of like my main argument with Lester Bangs but the thing is Philip uh, Seymour Hoffman's pretty good though Philip Seymour Hoffman <laughs> is fantastic and I think some of the lines that Lester Bangs has are superb like the whole like love disguises sex sex disguises love mm-hmm. that he does later on in the movie is a fantastic line that is kind of scary in context of loser men being alone in the house and stuff like that but like in this bankrupt world the only true currency is when you're being uncool with someone or whatever it's an interesting line to cross and I do think like it is that thing where like this kind of person can either figure out what they're doing and focus their energy into positive stuff like Cameron Crowe like Lester Banks has done or they can go off the deep end and I think it and just really love PewDiePie (laughs) and just really love PewDiePie but I think it is that kind of like fascinating thing which is like there are all these people out there that fall in love with this stuff and either you can embrace it and love it in a positive way or you can't and I think both William and Lester Banks and Cameron Crowe they do love this stuff yeah. in a positive way which I think is such an important reason for why this performance and why these characters do work Jack Black and John Favreau auditioned for this I could see it but it, it's gotta be Philip Seymour Hoffman so Lester Banks you know pays him to go review a Black Sabbath concert he can't talk his way backstage but he does meet Penny Lane played by Kate Hudson and Stillwater who are our fictitious band he will go on to cover Kate Hudson is so fucking good in this movie I couldn't think of a, a performance she gives in any the rest of her career that's better than this I think it gets better as it goes but you know she is just throughout it she's a billion actresses auditioned for this and we're gunning for it hard she actually got cast as Zoe Deschanel's character but then when Sarah Polly who had been cast as Penny Lane dropped out she managed to worm her way in to be 
Penny Lane and a, a career-defining performance for her. I think she came so close to winning the Oscar for this. It's like, her I think, only nomination, I think. It's her only nomination. I think she won the Golden Globe, and I think she was the favourite going into it, but lost it in the end. I mean, this is the case. She's, she's on the front cover. She's on it's, all it's, the marketing it's, material. <laughs> it's an iconic imagery. I mean, the fact that I think she's she nominated for supporting, which feels weird because she's in this movie so much. She's like, the lead actress. I don't she think. is the lead actress, but I mean, she's uh, up, as, up as supporting, and yeah. I can see why you say that she's supporting. Um, Would you argue just, Frances McDormand or something is the lead? I mean, but I think both of them were up for the supporting actress award okay. that year. I think both of them got a nomination, which is probably why she lost, okay. is because of vote splitting, because I think they're both fantastic performances. So it was Marsha Gray Harden for Pollock, which won, Judy Dench for Chocolat, and then Katie, Kate Hudson and Frances McDormand for Almost Famous and Julie Waters for Billy Elliot were the Academy Award for supporting actress that year. It's a weird performance that kind of like scatters it, because it is the focal point of the entire movie but she disappears for long swathes of it like she yeah. she will kind of smile and then wander off to Russell's room and, the and then plot we, continues we're not going to see her for a while yeah <laughs> yeah it, and that's what that's why it's such a but i think it, that's on purpose i don't know flitting in and out of this life and william like accusing her of not having anything substantive or whatever like it's a shame like cuz she is crushing it in every pretty much every scene she has but i some part of me feels that that was on purpose i think she is really good in this i think <laughs> is a very like this is her best performance she she doesn't really have another performance on this level until how to lose a guy in 10 days hey hey just between you and me like no one else is listening i kind of like how to lose a guy in 10 days how to lose a guy in 10 days is really good okay cool <laughs> on with the podcast i mean like she's she's good in that mcconaughey's fine <laughs> but like again like it, that's that's it those are the two movies that you think of when you think of kate hudson but we do have to talk about the fact that so in 2005 film critic nathan rabin comes up with the term manic pixie dream girl whilst watching elizabeth town which is cameron crowe's yeah. second follow-up to this she is very much of manic pixie dream girl sure penny penny lane is like if we're saying that kirsten dunces in elizabeth town then kate hudson definitely is in this movie sure but she is also based on someone real or many real people apparently but it's such an interesting because like obviously like the whole point of her is like men fall in love with her and I don't like she's she's an enigma and there's not much to her character beyond that but she's such a magnetic screen presence but she does go to Morocco though she does go to Morocco um, but no it, it's one of those interesting things because I like my my big criticism with like the big swathe of this movie mm. is when you have like Kate Hudson Anna Paquin Fry's about BG Phillips kind of like as the <laughs> as the band-aids mm-hmm. is I do wish that there was a female creative voice just to kind of like level this out and I'm not sure who you'd get because I do think that this 1970s culture of following bands around mm. at this level is a very specific worldview. It's... It, 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 it's just one of those things where, like, because these characters are. It's a very particular archetype, and Cameron Crowe is one of the few people that you would imagine would be able to write this movie just because he did live this. But it is that just those characters are so thinly sketched, but they're also so magnetic in their screen presence. They're all kind of ethereal, and Anna Paquin is so young in this, but. It's crazy that this was the same year as X Men, and yeah. she just looks far younger here than she, she looks does. far younger, and I mean, I posit to you, like, is it because she's being sexualized so much more than she was in X Men? Mm. or maybe it's because they grayed her hair a little bit in, in X-Men but no it, it's interesting I, I don't think it's bad but I do think that there is kind of like an ethereal otherworldliness to the women in the tour section of the movie yeah. that 
is interesting. I, I think this is very much a large problem that occurred in the 2000s in general. But also, it's a, it must probably happened in the 1970s because, wow, well, yeah, like, obviously, yeah. obviously, you've got all these stories of like they actually did take like 14, 15 year old girls with them, or like they didn't particularly care yeah. when they were like looking at the sea of fans and they go like, "You're hot, yeah. come with me." Well, yeah, um, I mean, like when William confesses his age to her and she keeps going, "Me too." It's just sort of like, uh, how old actually are you, Penny? <laughs> like, <laughs> well, I mean, I, I, the, there's the theory that, like, when she says, like, when she says, "I'm 16," and then she goes, "See, isn't the truth better to say?" Is the idea that, like, she is saying, like, "No, I'm. I feel better saying that I'm 16," but then he mm. immediately goes, "I'm 15." Yeah. Um, and whether or not that is her tricking him into saying his correct age, or whether or not that is her yeah. inadvertently revealing but that she's 16 years old at this point. But then which... it makes it even more terrifying when she says things like, "He's going to be my final project," and like, you know, she's a legend and she's been doing this for years. It's like, oh no. <laughs> Uh, so Stillwater Noah Taylor as their tour manager I think is good he's always good a great little character actor two of them are musicians slash actors with a musical background but yeah Mike, Mike Kozlek from Sun Kill Moon bit of a dickhead very much like forthright in his opinions I see but you know the the money pair Jason Lee Earl from My Name Is Earl for a lot of people but Jason Lee you should know who Jason Lee is as Jeff Beebe vocalist he is obviously not actually providing the vocals for Stillwater but the most prominent member of the band, Billy Crudup as Russell Hammond. So Brad Pitt was cast and it took him several weeks or months to admit he didn't really get it, which is (laughs) funny. And you know, what a coincidence that we followed Memento with this, two films where Brad Pitt was originally slated to be, or this isn't the lead male, but sort of the lead adult male in this film. Christian Bale and, and Billy Crudup were the finalists to replace Brad Pitt and Billy Crudup got it and I love that Billy Crudup was cast here because he was like sexy and mysterious and dark and then he will go on to be cast in the wonderful piece of cinema that is Watchmen because he's like boring and dull and like very out of time. His career after this is a total mess mm-hmm. What he did Big Fish which he's alright in but a little bit grating. Mm-hmm. Mission Impossible 3 who he's like third lead in that and I cannot remember him at all. Watchmen obviously and then after that like he's in Spotlight. I've heard he's good in Spotlight. I've still not seen Spotlight. Yeah um, plays, he plays Flash's dad in Justice League. He was on that terrible Netflix show Gypsy uh, oh, with Naomi okay. Watts. It's just like he hasn't had anything no. since to kind of like... It's crazy to think that. Like You think of him and you're like, he kind of hasn't really worked out. And then you look at this and it's like, look at this dude. Like This is <laughs> what an attractive human being. Like How charismatic he is and everything. But well, the thing is, like, both Billy Crudup and Kate Hudson, Like you think that if people watch this movie and they go like, oh, these guys are stars... And then no one really did anything with them. And all the people that kind of like became famous, Deschanel, Paquin, <laughs> Brain Wilson, Jay, Bar- Jay Baruchel, oh Eric God. Stone Street. like <laughs> Everyone is in this goddamn movie. Yeah, uh, Peter Frampton taught him to play guitar for realsies for this movie. And they practiced as a band for like four hours a day for six weeks, which is crazy because none of them are actually, well, maybe the drummer and the, and the bass guitarist are actually playing. But, you know, if, if Pearl Jam are doing the guitar and, this, I forget his name, he's like a session musician guy, but he provided the vocals, so it's like, so you just practice lip syncing together for six weeks just so that you could look like an authentic band and in their defence, they do look the part in the, I think I mean, I understand why you don't have a ton of scenes of them performing because they're not a real band, but I kind of wish there was a bit more of it and maybe there is on, on the cut you saw but you know, I there's like three scenes, maybe four Yeah, I think actually... it's, it's about that, I yeah. think Yeah. 
and one of them, you know, Russell electrocutes himself, which happened to two different musicians, including Ace Frehley of Kiss. Yeah, so like they stop performing after like a minute because he electrocutes himself. I think it's a decent fake band. It's more convincing than like Matt Damon in Eurotrip. How goddamn dare you? Like, like, I, I don't mean that Matt Damon's bad. I think that scene is fantastic, but I do think it's, it's a better fake. It's incredibly clear that it's not him. And, yeah, yes, exactly. Yeah. Whereas this is like, this is, I mean, it's not as good as Bradley Cooper was in Star is Born last year, but it's still like actually really quite good. If not for the music, just the general presentation and, and the look and everything, it had to work if you're going to do this and like have him covering a fake band. Like, I think it's for the best that it is a fake band and it isn't like, right, we're going to cast a fake Allman Brothers or we're going to, fa- worse, you know, we're going to cast a fake Led Zeppelin. Yeah, like we don't, we see some of these bands from a distance. Like, you see David Bowie being covered up with a coat and stuff like that. Like, <laughs> yeah. you hear Black Sabbath, Sabbath songs yeah. in the background. But you don't actually get to see a lot of these bands from around the time. Yeah, so he charms them. He gets invited backstage. You know, he gets Penny's number. Uh, and amazingly, his mother agrees to let him go on the tour. And they have this little conversation about going to Morocco. Fun fact, when he says yes, and she says, are you sure? And he says, ask me again. That was a legit moment of Patrick Fugit wanting another stab at the line. And Cameron Crowe just thought it was a really charming moment and left it in there as like a, you know, cutesy little moment between the mm-hmm. two characters. Kate Hudson's little monologue in French at some point here in this early stretch is pretty good. I like Jason Lee ripping Rolling Stone, but then saying it'd be pretty cool to be on the cover, though. Yeah, uh, I mean, that, that's, that's the whole thing is, like, I, I enjoy the fact that they repeatedly call him the enemy. It's an old joke. I mean, I know that the famous magazine in the UK isn't called the enemy. But every time they joke. said it, I thought that, though. <laughs> but, yeah, but it is, but it is a thing, like, there's a comic book that I've read where, like, they reference the enemy or the adversary and it is very much like a ripoff of that idea that enemy means the enemy they are yes. the, the foe which I, I just find very interesting yeah, and it um, becomes this term of endearment I think it's very cool and like yeah grab the enemy tell the enemy you know the enemy's cool yeah. apparently one of the and then we brothers kind of just... constantly thought Cameron Crowe was a narc when he was covering them so you know there you go and now we kind of move into this kind of like very stodgy yeah this middle part of the movie yeah it's kind of bloated and in summary just the band are getting bigger and he is becoming better friends with them but he is also frustrated by his inability to actually secure a proper interview with them because well you know Russell will say like oh I've grown past them musically and I can't go further and you know oh I can't believe I'm telling you this don't you know make us look cool and he's there when they get their first t-shirt and it's Russell is front and centre and the rest of the band are fuzzy and it's like oh obviously you're not going to cover any of this and this increasing thing of he's only supposed to be there until he gets what he needs and he's promised his mother that you know oh I'll come home after this and he keeps having to go one more city one more city one more city and he misses his graduation at the end and he has to stay all the way to New York yeah you get his like interviews with the the bassist and the drummer and they don't give him much of anything his interview with Jason Lee is very much that kind of like fake posturing and he wants to talk to to Russell. Yeah, Russell the, is the the one that everyone is interested in. He is the one that, you know, when they are spotted out in the neighbourhood, it's like, oh, are you Russell from Stillwater? Is it, you know, he's the sexy one. So one of the additional scenes in Extended Cut is a radio interview that they do with mm. Carl Gass as, the, as a DJ, <laughs> where he's like strung up on heroin and falls asleep in the middle of the interview. Perfect. So Russell and Jeff kind of like take over the broadcast and just start swearing openly over the mic. And it's the first time in my view that you kind of get the feeling of like what the tensions are with the band because yeah. you get this whole like we're gonna dance around the fact that we don't like
like each other and not say our true feelings because like they do that a lot where they're like kind of like manly posture up to each other but not fully say what's actually going on in their minds you kind of get two scenes of that before you get to the the final confrontation they have well and, I, I know there's a scene in the deleted uh in the extended cut where like i think jeff is wearing a t-shirt that says his own name but it's got a picture of russell above it and he says something to the effect of i'm the you they get when they can't get you which i think is a good line you do see this tension and the t-shirt thing is you know that's rough even something that's played for laughs like when the tour bus drives off and and jeff is still like in the bathroom is like oh i'm easy to forget i'm only the lead fucking singer like you know yeah i mean like there's there's lots of like really fun individual portions to this i think like it's the fun stuff that keeps coming up when they get electrocuted and they run off and they have the fight with mark maron and stuff like that (laughs) and i can't remember which character is but the one who like runs after the tour bus and starts telling william that his mum called sapphire sapphire Uh, and then she 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 runs runs into into the the wall yeah, yeah. Oh, I love the phone call between her and, and the mother as well. Because it's like, you know, this this is all of her worst nightmare. She's hearing about drugs and this and that, but she's also like, hey, he's such a nice boy. He loves, he likes women. He respects women. And it's like, this is really nice. When Russell is trying to kind of be a dick and be funny and like talk to his mother over the phone. And then it turns into this really serious, like soul searching. Hey, you can still be a person of substance. And <laughs> I thought they were going to do more with, when she says he's 15 years old, Russell kind of looks at William. I'm like, oh god. And I thought they were gonna do more with that. I think I think it's like the realization that like this is this is just a kid. This isn't yeah. someone who is an adult. This is a 15-year-old. Because I, I think they go in there thinking like you're 17, 18 years old, but it's actually like, oh no, this guy is super young. But like again, it's like like much like Philip Seymour Hoffman, like Frances McDormand, most of her scenes after he leaves are over the phone. Yeah. And she's so good. Like you can tell like when she does the commanding voice down the phone and it's like yeah. convincing these people to like focus and like listen to her. Like they they do it and it's so convincing yeah. and so good and, and Billy Crudup was actually on the other end of the phone when she was doing her half of that scene and her like breaking down after that phone call like just quietly in her house just missing her son terribly like at the beginning you're almost like oh this overbearing mother but it's like you are being remarkably good about this like your kid is doing all of this shit and you were just like having to just accept it and settle for it and like he yeah. keeps not calling and he keeps missing his tests and, and it's, it's that interesting thing like she, she, she obviously blames herself because she pushed him ahead. He probably wouldn't do this if he wasn't. It goes from, like, you know, no rock music and, like, this isn't a career for you to, like, you know, she's pushing him to be a good writer and stuff. And, and it's great. And, like, I like the bond between Francis McDormand and Billy Crudup. Like, it, it's, you know, they, they only have, like, the phone scene and, and the one at the end, but it's it's good stuff. And I kept thinking, I remember thinking, like, Russell's going to suddenly have this big epiphany because Francis McDormand got through to him. But it's kind of, it doesn't quite happen until the very end but we do we do get after the scene with the t-shirt and they have the big blowout about like which members of the band we probably get the two most iconic scenes from the movie that don't involve philip seymour hoffman him jumping in the pool him jumping in the pool <laughs> and tiny and, dancer and tiny dancer apparently patrick fugit is such a bad singer they had to edit him out of that <laughs> because he was terrible and also cameron crow made them do it over and over and over and over again and noah taylor at some point was like i'm not doing it anymore <laughs> so that's good but it is beautiful just seeing them you know it's starting with a smattering and then you know all these like open sulky hostilities and it all just melts away because of the love of the music man they do so much of the song that they they hold off on getting to the chorus like it's not like they go at the point they go like you do half a verse and then we'll get to the chorus like they do get a good chunk of the song in there which does help with the build up you also see that ugly side of Russell where like you know he's having a good time at first and it's all like ah this is fun he's at a local party and you know this that and the other but when it's like 
the next morning and he's still high and and drunk and everything and he like shouts at William and like I think he puts his hands on him doesn't he and he's, he's yeah and he's like yeah the band's over and all this like oh geez this is all quite dark but yeah I, I agree I, th- I think this stretch of the film is probably the least interesting of the three like, I think I think it's it's a it's a chunk of the film where it's best in like little moments and bursts yeah it's a shaggy dog situation with moments of brilliance that I'm a golden god on the rooftop is fantastic like him being high and like flicking the lights off and like picking up things and saying what's real but then he picks up like a little model or something but yeah. calling it real is like wonderful little moment it's those moments that really really work but it is very much like a yeah. when you think on it it's like everything kind of smushes together it's also the portion of the film where 15 year old William loses his virginity to three women at once <laughs> and it's like maybe that's true but knowing that this is all about your life and that you chose to put this in does make you look a little bit like a wanker Cameron Crowe, but never mind. I know. It's, it's like, you could have just said, like, is Anna Paquin, but instead there's all three. One does vanish by the morning. It is what it is. It's a little bit disturbing, but, you know. We do finish that scene with the, the phone call the next morning, yeah. where is it Estrella that picks up the phone, or is it uh, Sapphire? I don't, I don't know. One of the three, yeah. Uh, it's, it's, it's definitely not Anna Paquin because she's the one that he like puts his hand over her mouth to yes. stop her from talking. But like he tells them the pitch that Lester Bangs told him to say of yeah. like you're writing a story about a mid-level band struggling with fame and stuff like that. Yeah, and he and, told him you know, you're not their friends and they're going to seduce you with this and that. And that is the problem he has in the middle of this film. He is loving being their friend and living this lifestyle, but he gets very frustrated like the morning after this. And, what am I to you? And like you know, go yeah. do our laundry or whatever. I love that Rolling Stone turned to him and say he hasn't said them anything and they just turned to him and say we're going to give you a thousand more words yeah. and also you're in contention for the cover and you're like what is going on yeah, like, yeah. He's, he has sent you nothing yeah like, and it's his improvised pitch as well. like he's making this shit up while trying to stop a woman from saying anything weird I also love later on when they, they're like yeah we're going to use a mojo it's cutting edge technology it sends a page in 18 minutes it's like oh goodness me this sort of stretch of the movie I feel it's up until they are seduced by big time manager Dennis Hope played by Jimmy Fallon who coaxes them off the bus and onto a plane the bus is the almost famous tour that's where this secondary title comes from after Untitled was turned down yeah it's Jimmy Fallon it's SNL era Jimmy Fallon doing Jimmy Fallon stuff I yeah guess. he feels more like my interpretation of what Jimmy Fallon is actually <laughs> like yeah. because he's a bit of a dick he is a bit of a dick I'm denying um, but this is also where the second big like addition to the movie comes which is like so in the, in the original version of the movie where he does the whole like I'm going to go outside and I'm going to decide whether or not I'm going to go with you and then they say I miss him already it smash cuts to them walking up to the plane in the movie in the extended version of the movie there's like a three minute sequence of Kate Hudson dancing around with flowers which is weird because like listening to someone describe what that scene transition is I'm like no that would have been a lot better like why yeah so speaking of Kate Hudson this sort of closing act of of the movie it starts with this very dark and allegedly true thing of William witnesses the girls getting traded to other bands in a poker game and Russell is putting pressure on this to happen because his girlfriend is going to be at the New York show and he can't be banging Penny while his girlfriend is there so William is very visibly upset by this as anyone with any shred of empathy would be and when he is next talking to her he lets it slip as their argument gets a bit heated and we talked about how good she is in general but this is for me her best moment it's when she learns this that you know he sold you for beer and she's immediately 
crying. Then she cracks the joke about what kind of beer, and then you see the smile fading, and it's just like, oh my god, this is... My counterpoint to this is... Sure. I think this is one of Patrick Fugit's worst moments. Sure, but, I mean, I'm not... I don't like that. attention I think, to him. But sure, I think, I think she's fantastic, and I don't think he can nail the dramatic bits. I think he's so much better in almost his reactions rather than being proactive. All the stuff that I enjoy him in is when he's useless, whereas when he's driving this forward at this point, I think he's so much less interesting as a character. And I think yeah. it is a detriment. And maybe it is kind of the point where like he is still a 15-year-old teenager and he's doing this kind of like petulant thing to someone who he loves and it hurts her. And I don't think that's his intention, but I do think that it's that kind of split of saying that like, I'm not sure whether or not his immaturity goes far enough in making it work. But I mean, I do, I do think like Kate Hudson is fantastic. The single tear that she kind of like sheds at this point. But it does, it doesn't leave me questioning. So they're band aids. They follow around a band that they love. Yeah. And obviously, like being traded for what is it, like a thousand dollars and no, nah, less beer. than that. It's like fifty or something. Fifty and some beer. Like it, it's awful. But yeah. there is a lot of the girls kind of after this scene saying, I'm now with this band, I'm now with this band. I'm just intrigued, like, what the actual culture of this was. Because obviously, <laughs> yeah. Anna Packham goes, I'm going with Deep Purple to England. Mm. But it's not like she's saying, like, oh, my two favourite bands before this are Stillwater and, and Deep Purple. It almost feels like so many of these people are, they do like these bands and they do like these people. But it is more My favourite about... is whoever I'm with right now. <laughs> yeah, it's, my favourite is whoever it is right now. And I just enjoy the atmosphere of yeah. being in this thing which i think is really interesting Mm. but it is also is it about the music then or is it about the culture around the music because there aren't many scenes of them doing concerts it doesn't feel like it's about enjoying the music it feels like it's about enjoying the people which the hotels and the bus and the the parties and yeah everything yeah like even even the girls are doing that it's not like they go like come on we need to go watch the show and i don't know if that's because it was expensive i don't know if that's because they hadn't trained enough but it is that disconnect of we are trying to say that the music is the important thing Mm. and there's music playing constantly and you can tell that William loves the music but the movie doesn't make the people feel like they love the music you spoke earlier about how it would have been good to have a female voice and creative the point where I would really agree with that is when so she goes to New York anyway and then she runs off upset when she sees you know Russell with his girlfriend and gets asked to leave she ODs on on Quaaludes and William Slut shames her and kisses her while she is quite clearly not in any way with it before calling doctors. And it's like, that's not great stuff, is it? It's bad. Not that the movie doesn't not judge him, but I think the movie does enough of a job to say, like, this is creepy. Like, this is bad. Because, like, immediately after that, you get the scene where the doctor comes into the room or whoever works at the hotel and they're trying to shove the pipe down their mouth. Oh, the stomach pump is so dramatic to watch. And, like, that's that's just a fake version. Like but it life, cuts like. it cuts to William watching and then a beat music starts playing and he's got a smile on his face whilst he's watching her legs. And I think that goes some way to kind of like saying like this isn't right. He is kind of like objectifying this person who's going through this terrible time. Yeah. But then it's immediately undercut by the fact that the next scene is them working arm in arm through Central Park <laughs> whilst she like actually tells him her true name and stuff like this. Lady Goodman. Get Lady out of here Goodman. with that bullshit. I like she's just like, I think my mum wants me to be in the aristocracy. It's like <laughs> what? If you marry if you marry a lord, will you be Lady Lady Goodman? <laughs> 
Maybe. So he puts her on a plane, sends her home. And speaking of planes, kind of the big climax of the movie, while the band are flying, it's meant to be the end of the tour, like they're flying back. It's, 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 yeah, they're, they're fly, I think they're flying to the photo shoot for the Rolling Stone cover. Oh, yeah, with Leibovitz. Yeah. yeah. And there's horrific turbulence, and they all start to confess things to each other, such as the drummer, is it the drummer, I think? His first line of the movie is, I'm gay. And Jeff says he slept with Russell's girlfriend, and he's in love with her. <laughs> and, uh, you know, they talk about Penny, and and everything comes out. And William says he loves her, and I think it's good. I think it's good, too. I'm glad that they no one mentions the gay thing, because I feel like in the 2000s it would have been an easy thing to make a joke about, and then you get into kind of, like, gay panic, and that would have been bad. I'm glad they just leave it at, I'm gay, and kind of don't take it any further than that. Apparently Cameron Crowe, I don't know which musician it was, someone during some bad turbulence said, I'm sleeping with your wife, and Cameron Crowe, like, witnessed it, and, like, that's where this all came from. But you get the big, everyone's putting everything out there, like, actually just saying it and all that. Apparently when they show this movie on planes, they edit this entire scene out, which I wonder how, I mean, I guess you're not that bothered about the, the, the narrative while you're on a, on a plane, but I don't know how it quite works without that scene, but hey-ho. Because you get the scene where, like, I've read this article about this plane scene, you're like, what plane scene? <laughs> Yeah, I think it's good. It's it's not amazing, but yeah, it's good. But no, I, I feel I feel like it feels like the kind of thing that in another movie would be like the centerpiece of the movie. But and like... I feel if you cared more about Jeff in particular and the rest of the band it would have worked a lot better, but it's just like, this is the Russell show, and maybe that is a meta-commentary on how the band yeah. is. I mean, but... is, is, is the Jimmy Fallon saying that he, like, did a hit and run in the in your cut of the movie? Yes. Yes, okay. Equally not funny, I would imagine. It's not funny, but again, it's how I interpret it. Like, I would not be surprised if Jimmy Fallon started a show and it was just like, I did a hit and run and didn't, like, yeah. find the person. SNL Fallon is the true Fallon. Don't be seduced by his, like, carefully scripted off-the-cuff remarks on his thing. But the real good stuff, I think, is when they land and the band parts ways and Russell tells William, write whatever you want. And, he, you know, he calls Lester and he gets that encouragement to be brutally honest, and he is. And when the fact-checkers from Rolling Stone call them to ask, they all freak out and Russell finds it funny, but then ultimately he is the one that denies it all and kills the story for him and, like, ruins William's life. And it's like, you know, what a window into Russell, you know? Like, And I kind of... You know, I think the two-hour version might almost be too long, and your version is even longer, but I also still wish I knew more about the people that this is about, and, like, exploring why he killed the story, even though he's been the one throughout who's been most on William's side and everything. It's like, I don't know. I think that's an interesting moment, and they, they end up reversing it very quickly, but... I do like fun. that you have that hot minute, though, where, like, he reveals the wrongs and offices that he's 15 years old, everyone's kind of freaked out that they've hired a kid to do this. Mm except for the, the editor who kind of goes like, come on, let's do this. And then they read his story and they're just like, this is crap. This is... Yeah, because he this tries... Is this is a puff piece. Yeah. And then he writes the brutally honest version, yeah. Yeah. I think that's good. And, you know, him running into this into his sister again and she's like, yeah, you're independent. You've nailed it. And he's just like, look at this guy. He's miserable. And asking... Yeah, he's had, he's had his story cut. The people who he thought he liked have spiked his career aspirations. Yeah. Uh, he doesn't know where Penny Lane is. Yeah. He's missed his graduation. Everything's 
been for Nort, and he, he's had fun, but he's also had, like, probably quite an emotionally trying time. And I like that she asks, you know, she's like, oh, we can go anywhere, and it's like, we're going home, and you're going to hug our mother. And I think that's a, a wonderfully played scene by Francis and, and by Zoe Deschanel. Him just, you know, moping into the bed and everything. It's kind of crazy that, you know, Sapphire, who has been played as a comic relief character throughout is the one that finally gets through to russell you know like you know when russell's like oh penny and william okay and she's the one that is like putting him on blast and it actually gets through to it i don't know it's just kind of weird and it's again like maybe if we knew anything about sapphire this might have played better or if they had any scenes together really before this very very much like they are still these kind of like ethereal they're almost like spirits or whatever like they've come to deliver the moral story at points they slip in and say the wisdom and then flit off again yeah i mean like every single one of them like anna paquin like she talks in nonsense occasionally and then will like kiss him on the cheek and run away like I am super proud of Penny for, you know, Russell calls her and is like, I want to see you. And, you know, fooling himself into thinking that this teenage girl is like a future for him. And she instead sends him to William's house. And, you know, again, the the scene with Billy Crudup and Francis McDormand is great. I love Zoe Deschanel, like, (laughs) lusting for him openly. (laughs) I love love that he takes ages to figure out what I know, he's so dumb. Russell is a very (laughs) dumb person. (laughs) Where is she? It's like, what? She's there. (laughs) That's where where Anita is. You know, he goes into one of his bedroom and he gives him the interview and he says, oh, I I called them and, and okayed it. And, you know, they go on tour again on a bus and Penny goes to Morocco and it's all lovely and happy and wonderful. And I think the Rolling Stone it, cover comes out. And I think they name... They named the bus, like, not not on an airplane tour. I think it is a, a nice, charming ending. Uh, you know, him finally getting that interview in his own bedroom, <laughs> like, with the posters everywhere and everything, uh, after he was chasing it for the whole movie. Yeah, we I think we agree that the beginning and the end are more interesting than the middle, but then, like, the highlight reel of the movie, a lot of the scenes come from the middle. It's just it's a bit bloated. But I don't think I don't think it hurts it. No, it well, I mean, I watched I watched a three-hour version it's, of this movie. It's and breezy. I, yeah, it's it's the kind of thing that you can put on and just kind of like get whisked away with. I haven't regretted watching, spending three hours watching it today. I watched it in kind of like half hour, forty minute chunks at points, and, and it it does feel very like because there's so minimal plot and it's just kind of like and now they're in this city and now they're in this city so you could easily watch this in 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 distinct little chunks for me it's the authenticity like it feels authentic and they feel like a real band and obviously Cameron Crowe knows his shit and and he's gone to great lengths to make this feel real and the fantastic performances from you know Francis McDormand and Kate Hudson and Philip Seymour Hoffman and to a lesser extent Billy Crudup but I think he's decent enough I think all of that helps paper over the cracks of the fact that you know there isn't really a plot and it does feel a bit aimless at times i i feel it is being raised up by those things in a way yeah i think it's interesting that captain crow doesn't return to this well until roadies which was his show for showtime a couple of years ago which is also not very good mm. have you seen um, um pearl jam 20 I've not. It's another one that is just sitting on my shelf and I keep meaning to watch. Uh, I hear that is good, but... It's one of those interesting things, because, like, I, I look at the list of people in roadies, and so on roadies, it's a 
lot of modern rock bands mm. and I kind of as I said earlier like I do get the vague feeling that like he's quite rockist yes which I think which I think is like one of my big issues with kind of like the, the point of view sped across the movie is that like this isn't a guy who 20 years later will be saying like oh yeah hip hop is like the new punk that kind of thing and that, that that's obviously like a, a entirely different question because I think at this point where this movie is set in the 1970s this is a very mainstream and okay view because he is supporting the new artists but you do kind of get the feeling that this movie is kind of saying like oh, wasn't rock and roll great yeah but they're like they, those were his new artists and once new new artists come around you, yeah it doesn't feel like he's gonna go with them 70s were where it's at the 70s were like the peak best times yeah and I no one can like, fuck with led zeppelin or, or the orman brothers like yeah like you get jay baruchel being a literal led zeppelin like junkie like literally falling around the country we talk like, about how young was anna paquin how young was jay baruchel in this uh, probably about 17 18 that's insane he looks like 12 he's what he's two three years off doing undeclared at this point yeah. he obviously grows up a lot in those two years because he does look like a college person in Undeclared. Yeah. You know, you got Rain Wilson in it for like, what, 60 seconds max? And yeah. Mitch Hedberg, the late great Mitch Hedberg is, is in this movie and all sorts of people. But yeah, I, I think it is a movie to remember for who's in it, how good they are in it and like being a very authentic version of what it is going for. And I think a lot of people could attempt this and probably wouldn't be able to capture that to the same degree. Again, it's we're not ranking these from 1 to 25, but this is definitely, you know, it's not on this list with a bullet. But I do deeply appreciate it. I think it is doing some really good stuff. It, there are some things to complain about here, probably more so than some of our other ones. But yeah, if you're doing like a list of the hundred best movies of the decade, this is on there with a bullet. I think. Mm. I think the main reason why we're doing this is because of our general lack of doing Pixar and our general lack <laughs> of knowledge of foreign cinema. Yeah, um, so it, like, the, probably the two big reasons why we're not why we're covering this instead of doing something else. How do we, you feel about this? This movie won the best screenplay original at the Os- at the Oscars. Because that's the thing is, it doesn't feel like a screenplay movie. This feels like the kind of thing that was done on set as like ad lib and yeah. And... Exactly. I was about to say you could tell me that the cast improvised most of the dialogue, and I believe you. Yeah, it doesn't feel written. It feels performed, and it, it feels like it feels like Cameron Crowe had the vision of the production and the the set design and the, all of that shit. But there's not really much of a story to it. Like you could sum it up very easily, and like. Yeah, I wouldn't have given it screenplay at all. Yeah, I mean, like, I mean, the thing is, like, when I when we're looking back on this discussion, I think we spent a good thirty minutes like talking about the performances and the actors, mm. which, and then we just kind of like, and then the plot kind of happens. And yeah, but I mean, you've got at least one person giving the performance of their career, and you know, you've got someone else who's giving one of the best performances of his career in like a very short amount of time. I mean, so. you have you have two actors who are never bad yeah. in Francis McDormand and Philip Seymour Hoffman, yeah. just doing maybe not career best work, but work that would definitely like sit on a highlight reel and and has sat on a highlight reel in the case of Philip Seymour Hoffman and this is Kate Hudson's defining performance the Blu-ray case is still just a picture of Her face. Kate Hudson mm. yeah well there you go I mean I don't feel we have to sit here and defend these choices that much <laughs> but in conclusion this has been Almost Famous next week we will be moving into the year 2001 and Denzel Washington's second Oscar or was it first it's uh, Trading Day your, is it your favourite movie is it my favourite movie yeah no 
No? I like it a great deal, and I kept pestering you to watch it, and you wouldn't, and it took this podcast to do it. But you have until next week to watch that training day next week. And uh, this has been There Will Be Movies, because, Ben, will there be movies? Of course there'll be movies. There will be movies. Enter the real world.com, soundcloud.com, slash Mike and Matt. Thank you, everyone. We will see you next week for training day. (laughs) 